It was a dark and stormy night. Three friends sat down around a campfire much like this one, and behind them, in the darkness, a killer video game! Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. This week we're talking about horror games and just what it is that lets video games be so uniquely scary. It's one thing to see a spooky door, it's quite another to walk through the spooky door. So let's walk through the spooky door together, yeah? I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm Maddie Myers. And I'm Jason Dreyer. Hello. 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 Hello there, both of you. You guys, after two years of avoiding the stupid virus, I have picked up COVID. My entire family, really, I picked oh. it up. My wife got mm-hmm. it in the city and brought it home to me, so it's her fault. Yeah, so we have to be really careful on this episode Yeah, well, to stay away from you. You don't want to transfer it through Skype. Yeah, I right, heard that right, 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 right. really, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I spit a lot into my microphone, so if you <laughs> yeah, guys pick up some of that spittle. Um, I just wanted to warn anybody in case I pass out in the middle of this episode, in case I just right. get mm-hmm. conked and like right before one more thing, I'm like, all right, we're going to take a break <laughs> and then just fall asleep. Yeah, we'll wake you up in time for one right. more thing. Jason is in the middle of an impassioned point that he's making and then he just stops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just falls just over. That'd be terrifying, actually. Hopefully not. I'm glad to see you seem you seem you seem pretty good and that's good to see. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm at the very beginning of it, so hopefully it doesn't get bad, but it feels yeah. Feels um, feels like the beginnings of a cult so far. So mm. we'll see. You well, we appreciate that you're here to uh, to talk with us, and we know that you'll be here next week. <laughs> the uh, the first important reminder to give people is that next week we're going to be talking about Sweet Code and Two. Uh, we're going to be we playing are. up to. How do you describe it, Jason? The, the, Luca the point Blight that we're stopping. Part? Well, the checkpoint that I gave people is just Luca Blight. I'm like, you'll know it when you get there, you'll right? You just say you Luca Blight, it. like you know, yes. you know it when you get through it. Yes, I've gotten that far, and I do know it. And uh, that's real dedication. One of our hosts here has COVID, and he's still showing up to podcasts. And that's the kind of dedication you get when you're a listener-supported podcast, like Triple Click. So and, true. And uh, we, we really appreciate all of you who support our show, not just who become members of Maximum Fun, but also those who, who spread the word, who tell their friends about it. That's the main way that people find out about our show. I guess mm-hmm. sometimes... There are promos on Maximum Fun, but really it's mm-hmm. word of mouth, and we appreciate everyone who spreads the word, who leaves us reviews, and all that kind of thing. And we should talk about this month's bonus episode that you only get oh, if you're a Maximum Fun Yeah, yeah. so if you become a member, if you go to MaximumFun.org slash join to become a member, really at any tier, you get access to the Maximum Fun bonus content podcast feed, which has all these bonus episodes, including monthly episodes from Triple Click, and the new one is going to be about dun-dun-dun... Elden Ring. I suppose you already knew that because we already said that we were doing that. So maybe the timpani part there. But it's it's still exciting, right? I mean, it's it is still, still exciting. People are waiting. People want to mm-hmm. know what we think of America and Ronnie and the gang. You know, they, it's true. We have we have a lot of. I can't wait for thoughts. Kirk to explain it to me because I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> it's gonna be an hour of just lore explainers. <laughs> Yeah. It's funny because I was I was deeper in the lore like a month ago, and now I'm trying to kind of refresh because I'm going to be driving mm-hmm. this episode. But that'll be up toward the end of the month. It's going to be really fun. And uh, yeah, MaximumFun.org slash join. Become a member. Support our show. And get bonus episodes of Triple Click. All right. Let's, let's move on. So most games podcasts, they tend to record episodes about scary stuff in October when it's kind of close to Halloween. But Triple Click is not your average games podcast. To kind of celebrate that, we're going to be talking about scary games, about things in video games that scare us, just kind of as a broad topic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In honor of the scariest holiday of all, uh, Memorial Day. Yeah, Yeah, sure. (laughs) I really associate that with with being terrified. You're remembering the, the Fallen 
and yeah, zombies, I guess. I guess war. I, war is, yeah, war yeah, is pretty war scary. Is, mm-hmm. War never changes. Call of Duty and zombies, something, something. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about <laughs> what makes a video game scary, how horror games work, and uh, yeah, just this general topic. I, I put an outline here, but we're going to keep it kind of loose. We're just going to talk about it because I think keep there it are a lot loose. of different, different interesting directions mm-hmm. that this episode could go. So to start with... I asked um, each of you to bring in some example of a of a moment from a game or a game that you played that was scary in an interesting way or that spooked you out or, or I don't know just uh, just something something that you thought would be good to, to kick us off. So Maddie, why don't you why don't you go first? Sure. So I'm sure we're going to talk about the experience of playing horror games with someone else, and that's what mm. my example is. I played. I mean, I've played a lot of Resident Evil games, but this specific anecdote is about the 2008 port to the Wii of the first Resident Evil, which is a very Mm. awkward Resident Evil. It's got tank controls. It's pretty hard to get Jill Valentine to go where you want her to go in that game. I would say that's part of what's scary about it, actually, is that you look like you're peering into this diorama, kind of like a Diablo isometric situation where it's not fully isometric, but you are peering into this mansion and you're watching. I mean, I always play as Jill. You're watching Jill walk around (laughs) and you have sort of control over what happens to her, but not as much as I would like. So um, I played this version of Resident Evil with my friend Jake and the two of us kept switching off and... I think this was the first time in my life that I noticed how completely different it feels to be the one playing the game versus the one watching the game. Mm. Because the first Resident Evil is so freaking goofy. Like, there are so many YouTube videos making fun of the translation. It's very awkward. There's, like, the famous Jill Sandwich (laughs) line and meme accompanying it that people can Google if they're young and they don't know what I'm talking about. And it's just a goofy game. And, And when you're watching it, it just feels silly. But when you're playing it, I don't know. It's like something magical happens where you're like, well, wait, I don't want to I don't want to open this door. Well, anything could be in there. And if I click this button to open the door, what's going to happen? And there's just such a different physical like I would feel my whole body tense up as soon as Jake would hand over the controller to me. And both of us were doing it. We were both like, why is this so much scarier when I'm the one <laughs> controlling this? Like, what is happening here? And we got through it, but it was ridiculous. And I, I don't even I don't know why. It just there's something about it. There's something about being the person who presses the button to do something as opposed to just sitting there making fun of it on the couch next to your friend. It's kind of a perfect encapsulation of the power of video games, right? I think that horror games more than any, maybe more than any other kind of game, like because it's so potent, right? Fear is so potent and the feeling of being afraid of what's around the next corner and the feeling of actually having to go around the next corner. Mm -hmm. It's such a crucial difference between playing a video game and watching a horror game. That's a little bit like the moment I'll talk about as well. Or watching a movie or a show or anything else because watching a video game is essentially that same disconnected experience and you can even laugh at the other person's moves and be like, ha ha, I wouldn't have done that. But then as soon as they Mm -hmm. hand the controller over to you, you're like, would I have done that? Now I have to actually answer for my crimes and the jokes that I've been making all afternoon about right, this right. game. Right, you're running up the stairs instead of running out the front door. I now have to push a wardrobe in front of a zombie so that it doesn't get out the door and kill me. Terrifying stuff. It's like going to a haunted mm-hmm. house. It's uh, the closest yeah. closest you'll get to uh, being an actual like actual jump scares and actual turning in corners, like controlling it, as opposed to I don't know watching someone go into a haunted house, watching a YouTube video of someone going into a haunted right, house. watching you know the haunting of Hill House or whatever. Right. 
being tested, being tested on how well you would do. That was like the ultimate joke of Scream, of the first Scream, is that these people sit around talking about horror movies for the first part and saying, oh, what does she say? Sydney's like, oh, there's always some girl who mm-hmm. runs up the stairs when she should be running out the front door. And then the first thing that happens is the dude comes in the door and she runs up the stairs because that's the easiest way to get away. And it's, it's yep. video games put you in that situation where you're like, oh, I shit, <laughs> like I am running up the stairs. <laughs> how am I going to get out of this haunted mansion? Yeah. yeah. Here I am. Um, Jason, what is your what is the game that you brought in for us? Okay, so I don't really play horror games. They're not yeah. my they're not my jazz, I guess. But I'm I really, really like thriller games. And I think there are some key distinctions, but one of one of which being that like um a thriller game is more story driven and it's more about just kind of keeping you on the edge of your seat and just like hooked by twists and turns that are all based on the narrative as opposed to ma- like big scary things trying to eat you um and so one of the best feelings one of the things i'm always chasing when i play a really good thriller game is that feeling at the end when it's like you're you're left with all these mysteries and you're finally getting into this like big metallic room and you see the pods and you see the computer terminal with all the answers on it and your heart is racing and you just like you have that like adrenaline feeling of like oh man this is it this is going to be that that twist that thrill that sensation that's really just going to turn the game upside down for me um and so uh Danganronpa I think is a really good example of that Mm -hmm. especially the first one when you're really just like piecing together the mystery towards the end of it um but there are a lot of games like that a lot of visual novels are really good at capturing that feeling like the zero escape games um so that's that's the game that i wanted to bring to the table and the kind of idea that i wanted to bring to the table which is that i think there's something maybe kind of like the loose sibling of the horror is the thriller and that's something i tend to gravitate more towards Mm -hmm. yeah i think the potency of danganronpa is there are horrific things happening in the story, right? I mean, when you explain what's happening in this in this game, which is a bunch of kids are locked in this school in this very creepy environment and forced to kill one another, and then they do <laughs> kill one another. And it's all for this very sort of bleak conspiracy in the end. And the revelations are all very dark and scary. It kind of sits with you in a different way. Like it yeah. gets into your head. And you do think about that premise as silly and outsized as that game can be, even though there aren't moments right where you're being chased by a monster down the hallway. It's a different sort of fear. Yeah, I think that's another kind of key element of the thriller is that horrifying things are happening and it is like like horrifying from a, a more macro perspective like you mentioned with that or even if it's like a, I don't know, like a standard political th- thriller or mystery thriller where like, oh my God, the president's been assassinated and or the president's about to be assassinated and only Jack Bauer can stop the assassin. But wait, now Jack Bauer is the assassin. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, and that is like, yeah, conceptually horrifying, but the moment to moment is more thrilling, I guess, than horrifying, which is more mm-hmm. what I'm looking for when I play a game or experience anything. I really enjoy those more than horror. And they they can mix together. Like Stephen King's books, a lot of his books are kind of a, a blend of both, I would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did either of you play the game Soma, that sci-fi yes. horror game? Maddie, you did. Yeah, yeah, definitely a psychological thriller about the nature yeah. of being a person or being a robot and transferring your consciousness to another being. Yeah, it's a game where this makes me think of this, Jason. It's a yeah, a game. It's like an a undersea 
horror experience, I suppose. It's it's that kind of abyss, sphere, kind of, you know, you're down on the bottom of the ocean, scary mm-hmm. stuff is happening, you're all alone. And um, you don't have any method for fighting back against monsters. And there right. are horror parts of the game where you're kind of having to sneak around these monsters. This was made by Frictional, the same people who made um, Amnesia, which is actually going to be the game that I brought in. But uh, what's interesting about that game is that there are scary parts of it where you're... You know, it's scary. There's a monster and it's really creepy. It's making horrible sounds and it's following you around and you have to go press a bunch of levers and open the code for the door. And this thing is kind of following you. And if it sees you, it'll kill you because you don't have a way of killing it. And those parts are scary. But then, like you said, Maddie, this game is really concerned with the idea of consciousness and of copying yourself. Actually, Severance. Anyone who likes Severance, who likes these ideas, should really play so much, plays with a lot of the same ideas. Who is you? Are you still you if there is another copy? of yourself which mm-hmm. you do you you know whose eyes are you seeing through you know and a lot mm-hmm. of these questions what that if you met you etc right would that be creepy yes um, and like <laughs> what do you owe to yourself there's all these all these big philosophical questions that spiral up to this really incredible finale that is truly deeply horrifying on so many levels just not even in the answers it gives just in the questions that it raises mm-hmm. and that goes way beyond the anything I ever felt when some spooky thing was following me down the hall yeah, whatever. Yeah, like like, stealth sequences. Nowhere near as scary. Yeah. So. Who cares? Having an existential crisis. Now that's the real shit. And <laughs> yes. That, yes. The fear of just thinking you. about the things that happen. So that sounds more like a psychological thriller with like a mm-hmm. horror atmosphere. Right. I, I think horror, if you're kind of trying to define the difference between the two, I think horror is more about putting you in a situation where like you are being chased or you are like the atmosphere is horrific and, and scary. Um, you're in this mansion. You don't know what's going to pop out at you. You're like... Um, on a spaceship and there's a giant alien creeping through the the vents and it's trying to kill you as opposed to the thriller where it's more about like question asking or kind of the story that is horrifying you and propelling you along. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a transition that games underwent. It's basically the the shift from Resident Evil to Silent Hill where Silent Mm -hmm. Hill is playing more in the realm of psychological horror where the thing that is scary is just thinking about some of the stuff it's raising because those are like fundamental fears, you know, Uh death and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, being obliterated and not existing or being totally powerless and watching horrible things happen to people you care about, like things like that that aren't you know, just a thing chasing you down the hallway or like jumping out at you unexpected. I also think with horror games specifically, one of the things that video games can do that other media can't is video games can set you back if you do the wrong thing, if you get get caught by the Mm -hmm. guy, if you're playing Metro Dread and you get uh, attacked by the Emmy and you let the Emmy catch you, then you have to go back to the checkpoint. Um, Mm -hmm. So it can actually feel scary because you're well, well, I'm afraid of losing my progress. Exactly. It's annoying. It's like it really gets you. You know, I kind of think that a lot of times that kind of thing in horror games undercuts the horror. Like if you're doing something over and over again, repetition is kind of anathema to fear, at least for me. Yeah. When I've done it a few times and then I've died, I'm like, oh, this isn't scary anymore. Yeah. Even with Mr. X, don't you love those those Resident Evil games with Mr. X or like the other people mm-hmm. who are chasing you? Around? He's scary in the abstract. Yeah. Eventually it can become less scary right. because you've mm-hmm. seen Mr. X too many times. And in the original ones, you know exactly what triggers him, whereas in the newer ones, he can just show up at any time. And that's... A different kind of scary. I mean, I actually mm-hmm. would argue, as I did in my original example, even if you know exactly what's going to happen, it can still be scary to open the door and trigger that cutscene or whatever it is because you're like, 
oh, this next part's going to be stressful. I'm going to have to <laughs> run away from this guy. I'm going to sure. have to really think about what I'm going to do. And you're like walking up to the door and then you do have to press the button to like get it started. And even that sensation of like gearing yourself up, like that's part of what's pleasurable about being scared is just being yeah. like, oh, this is about to happen. Which is, it's like how tropes play into horror films as well, right? That you know something scary is about to happen and then it mm -hmm. plays with your expectations in various ways. Or even if something, just something scary is behind the door, it still is this kind of, it's this whole dance of, of anticipation as it builds it up. Yeah, so the, the game I was going to bring in is related to all of this, um, is Amnesia 2, A Machine for Pigs, which is a game that's okay that I reviewed for Kotaku back in the day. And I wound up reviewing a few horror games despite not being a big horror game person, at least at the time. But it led me to all of these. Wasn't one of your reviews just the word nope over and over again? That was the one with nope. And that's why that led me to sort of a couple of different structures that I've got for horror games, like ways that I think of them. And um, the nope moment was what I talked about there. There's this moment really early in that game where it's very early. You're walking through this house. It's not really clear what's going on in the game, or even like what kind of a game this is going to be. The first Amnesia was kind of a revolution in horror. It was a big moment in horror because it was right around when YouTube and streaming were kind of catching on. So a lot of people like to watch people play this game. And it had a kind of procedural ghosty, this kind of Lovecraftian creature that chased you around through these pretty low detail environments. But what was scary was that it was unpredictable and that you had no means of fighting back against it. You just had to run away. And so you'd be like, oh, here I am in this room. I've been in five different times. And oh my God, there it is. And like you would get these videos of PewDiePie screaming or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and, like, yeah, yeah. That was a big part of the appeal. The sequel, I was kind of assuming it would sort of be the same in it. I guess it kind of is, but it's more scripted. It's more narrative. There's not as much horror in it. And it's actually not a very scary game on the whole. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know that. So I was playing very early. I'm walking through this house. It's a spooky house, man. It's just spooky. The music is spooky. There's a storm, I think, outside. Everything looks weird. You're finding all this evidence of weird, like, pig experiments. And there's, like, kind of bits of blood. And, like, it's just a, not a cool place to be. And then eventually you find this uh, stair, like, a ladder leading up to an attic and there's an attic door and you have to go up the ladder and into the attic. And I was just sitting there for a while looking at the attic being like, I don't want to go up there. <laughs> like, I Just like yawning, dark attic doorway in this spooky house. Everything's mm -hmm. telling me this is a bad idea. Yeah. And I kind of like sat with that moment and explored it and it became the nope moment, which this game is full of nope moments. And that's kind of, to me at least, the magic of horror games or scary games. It's the thing that we've already been talking about is this idea that you now have to open the door. You have to go in and and see what's behind it. And that's why, like, you know, I've always talked about horror game doors. The door in um, PT is a great example, mm -hmm. the short horror demo for Silent Hills, where there's just this door. It starts with the door. And the first thing you have to do is, like, walk up to this door and, like, and open it. And who knows what could be on the other side of the door? You know, doors have been, I mean, in Silent Hill, the door animation is very famous. There's always a door, always kind of a, a barrier between you and the unknown. And I've always thought that 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 was a really a beautiful encapsulation of a big part of horror games. There's this separation between two feelings. I see these two feelings as being like central to horror. There's dread and there's panic. These are the two feelings that I think you kind of spend a lot of time in if you're playing a game. And I think the most is like... So there's Metroid Dread and Doki Doki Panic. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. There's, so there's dread and panic. And if you're... I think that an effective horror game is going to have more dread 
than panic. I think that that's typically because I think it's probably easier to make dread than mm -hmm. it is to make panic because dread all you got to do is make a spooky house and then have a like weird doorway that a person has to go through jump scares I feel like Five Nights at Freddy's is like oops all panic of horror games <laughs> well that's why it only right. takes like an hour to play right like because you can only have that sort of panic for so long yeah it's also right. why I think people are able to make their own versions I mean there's like a huge modding community for that because it's such a simple concept and so you can iterate mm -hmm. on it a ton just being like okay there's going to be these scary uh, machines, <laughs> machine Maddox, mm -hmm. and they're going to walk around this area. What else can they do? What are all the different ways that a jump scare, what are, what's the anatomy of a jump scare? Of course, mm. there are other there are other versions of Five Nights mods <laughs> that don't just do that. But I do think that's what's inspirational about it is that it's just, mm -hmm. okay, how many times can I get the player to panic over the same type of thing over and over <laughs> right, again in right. different scenarios? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I first started thinking about the dread panic thing when I was reviewing Alien Isolation, which Oof. one of the I would say one of the best horror games I've ever played. It definitely has its faults, but like as a just pure distillation of those two feelings, <laughs> it's very good at it. This is a game for anyone who doesn't know. It's an alien game. You're on basically the Nostromo. It's not the Nostromo. It's a space station. You're not Ellen Ripley. You're Amanda Ripley. So you're like her daughter. But whatever. It's just alien. Mm -hmm. And there's this alien and there's only one for pretty much the whole game, and it just hunts you. And it's, again, a sort of procedural artificial intelligence. So you never really know when it's going to show up. And there's nothing you can do about it when it shows up in the game. It just pretty much kills you if it sees you. So you spend the whole game in this state of dread where you're dealing with other stuff. There's puzzles to solve. There's other kinds of enemies. There's, like, androids and stuff to deal with. But most of the time, just in the back of your head, you're like, that freaking thing is going to drop through the ceiling, and then I'm going to suddenly be in this other world. And that's when the panic sets in, is... The thing drops through the ceiling, you dunk under a desk, and then you're in this situation where it's like right next to you, it doesn't see you, but if you move, it'll hear you, and you're like, you know, your adrenaline is kind of going, and you're thinking, I just have to get to the save point, I just have to do this thing, I don't want to die. <laughs> and it's kind of this great balancing between those two feelings. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like the the scenarios where I'm just experiencing dread are also the ones that are easiest to break or laugh at, I would say, mm. according mm -hmm. to your distinction. Like one of my examples on my list here of things that have scared me, um, the Resident Evil 7 demo, which is sort of a PT-alike, it was definitely influenced mm -hmm. by PT, where you're just exploring the same house over and over again. Also played this one with friends. I do that a lot because I it's like the only way I can get through this kind of thing. So <laughs> um, we were all trading the controller around for this demo. And there's this part where you go up into an attic. And when you sort of explore the attic, you're walking around. And then if you turn back around towards some mannequins, they will have faced you. And they weren't facing you when you walked <laughs> up. But when you turn around, they're facing you. And the first time I saw that, I was like, oh, I, I don't like that. I don't like that the mannequins no. turn around. That's spooky, and I, I want to get out of here. And then my friend just kept being like, well, let's just see what triggers it, and just like completely broke it by like wa walking up and down the stairs a million times and like mm -hmm. seeing how close you need to get to the mannequins before they turn around. And she kept being like, is this scary, Maddie? Is this scaring you? Are you really freaked out right now? <laughs> this is really scary, right? And of course, it's like not scary at all. She's just messing with me at that point. But like, mm -hmm. that's part of what's kind of amazing about horror games is that it's really just it's a haunted house like Jason said like it's just a thing a person made where it's like okay like the player's gonna walk this mm -hmm. distance away from the mannequin and they're gonna flip around just then and it's gonna be perfect when they turn around but it's like as soon as you figure out exactly what leads up to that moment mm, it's you find the trick it's not scary anymore but it's also still 
impressive. Like, it's not as though I'm not still mm-hmm. like, oh, I see what you did there. It's like looking up how a magician does their trick on Wikipedia and being like, uh-huh. oh, okay, that's very oh, interesting. Yes, and now I, I never now. want to see it again yeah. because I'm right, good. Right. I feel like that was in Bioshock, by the way, the original Bioshock. That like, Oh, sure. In... The original Bioshock, kind of spooky. I was about to say, it was. It was Sander Cohen. Yeah, yep. yeah. Sander when... Cohen's whole thing was... All these mannequins that would move around. Mm-hmm. Well, and in the in the Ghostbusters, was it 2016 Ghostbusters? Yes, where yeah. Leslie Jones walks into a room and there's all these creepy mannequins and, and she's, she's like, nope, like, not out. going in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is it about mannequins? Is that they don't have faces? I guess it's that they don't have faces. They can be but, scary, this idea. Yeah, and they're not supposed to move. Faceless things are scary. It's an like, uncanny valley thing, I think. Yeah. I well. think it's something that looks humanoid, but like doesn't yeah, have exactly. a soul. Like, yeah. you out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like Because it reminds you of a dead body. Like, and it, right. it kind of evokes death in that way yeah mm-hmm. was it is it an eternal sunshine of the spotless mind when you see people without faces i think there's a scene yeah in that. they're like blurred out mm-hmm. that is a very you're that's forgetting very things and things are disappearing horrifying. yeah, yeah mm-hmm. so okay so here's another thing that i that maddie one of the very first things that you said made me think of this and that's that i think that controls play an important role in something being scary. And on the Steam Deck, which has the best controls. <laughs> <laughs> you can't play horror games on the Steam Deck. Because it's too good. Just, it's too comfortable. It's too good. It's too yeah. Um, so what I really want to talk about here is, is the battery life on the Steam Deck. <laughs> um, no, no. So you mentioned Resident Evil, which like famously has pretty lousy controls. The original was these tank mm-hmm. controls where you would have to move your character relative to the camera positioning mm-hmm. and not relative to their body. And so you had to really kind of get your head around that. And it's very confusing if you play a game with tank controls now it's very weird you like turn Mm -hmm. and then move forward it's like a tank you know where you're turning the treads and moving forward and that's part of what makes it so scary when you're there's like two zombies coming at you down the hallway but you're like oh god oh god oh god i have to carefully maneuver my character Mm -hmm. and then like turn (laughs) around i just want to move the joystick away from the screen but like that might not necessarily be the direction the joystick should be moving in order for you to (laughs) get jill away from the zombies it's terrible it's horrible right and if it were smoother than that, it would undercut some of the horror. And there are like, I suppose there are horror games that I've played that have smoother controls. Mm -hmm. But really... Like, say, every other Resident Evil in successive order after the first one, perhaps? That's true, but I would even say that like Resident Evil Village, the most recent one, I wouldn't call those controls like, it's not Destiny, you know? It's Mm -hmm. not Vanquish. Like, it's not a game where you're like super fast, like ADS, like swinging around, you can like turn and shoot and like just totally like have total fluid control. It's still a little bit slow and weird and turning kind of takes a long time. There's always an element of that in a game that's trying to be scary. And a lot of times as these series start to like fine tune the controls and remove that kind of thing and give you more and more fluidity, they also become less scary and more action focused. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know, like I think the panic moment, part of the panic moment for me, when I think about those feelings, it's also the feeling of like, and I don't know how to deal with this because I'm never, I haven't even been in this situation that many times and I'm going to have to kill this zombie and I don't even really remember what buttons do what. I'm not spending all my time shooting zombies, so it's not a comfortable thing for me to do yet. So in that way, I guess like the scarcity of the panic events also matters because it has to feel kind of ungainly mm. or stressful for you to do it just on a mechanical level. Intentionally bad controls. Yeah, I wonder if that, uh, how often that happens or if that has happened, um, that a game's developers are like, you know what, we want the controls to intentionally feel bad every time you do this. Um, there, mm-hmm. there are times when like a game might intentionally mess with you, like if you're drunk or something and it's like, oh, we press A and it doesn't do anything. But I wonder mm-hmm. if there's times when a mechanic is actually meant to feel bad 
bad because that will evoke the correct emotional response in you. That's kind of an interesting an interesting notion that I hadn't really given much thought to. Yeah. I think you can at least like the intent is harder to say just because it's sort of hard to know what people sure. were thinking. Sure. Though Resident Evil probably gives the clearest example, like the clearest sort of chronology of this, because even going outside of the first game, you can look at Resident Evil 4, which is a game that a lot of people see as the big transition point in that series where it became more action-based. And even Resident Evil 4 doesn't have great controls if you play it today. Um, you know, you have to, Leon has to stand still in order to aim. So you still wind up in this. Yeah, they fixed it for the remake for what it's worth. Like on Wii, it, it plays pretty well. And I think on GameCube, it was a little bit better. No, actually, no. It was just on Wii because you can use the motion controls. But The motion controls. The point. Mm. And I've, well, and I've played it in VR, actually. The mm. the new VR version on Oculus Quest is pretty cool. And it's, I mean, that you're much more mobile in that game. You can teleport around. It really changes changes the way the game works. But in even in like the Wii version of Resident Evil 4, if I remember correctly, you can't move while you're aiming, right? Right, you, you can't. You, so it's, it's still... It's just easier while to it is, start the process yes. of aiming. So, well, and, right, and the game is more action-based, and you just have more ammo also and kind of better guns. But because you can't move when you aim, it does create this like very distinct Resident Evil thing where anytime you bring your gun up, you're suddenly rooted to the spot and it becomes this like kind of pressure cooker thing as you know there's a bunch of zombies in that game so they're kind of coming toward you down an alleyway and you shoot one and you can't tell if you killed him and then you see another one coming and you're like crap I'm gonna have to bail out and bailing out requires the whole you stop you like hit the turn around button you kind of run you hope you do that before they get to you like it still has this like heaviness that forces you to really consciously make decisions compared to say Dead Space 2 is a good example maybe we'll all find out mm. um, if I win our vet and we all play it but that's a game where you're much more mobile Isaac is he's not like you know I don't he's not Bayonetta but he's more mobile and able to move around a little bit more and then the enemies just have to be tuned to kind of deal with the fact that he's a more mobile guy right which I think is part of why Dead Space 2 moment to moment just feels more like an action game like a Half-Life right. 2 which Ravenholm was pretty scary for me actually but it, <laughs> <laughs> I was actually going to bring up Dead Space 2 anyway because there is a scene in that the eye poke scene where mm. I did talk to a guy who worked on it about how they intentionally designed it to be uncomfortable to play, just like Jason said. And people can find this at Polygon if they want. But it's basically a mini game where you have to stick a needle into Isaac's eye, which sounds terrible even when I just say it. But the mini game, just the way that it's designed is also terrible and I, I interviewed this guy just to be like how did you make this feel so bad and also why have you done this like why have you done this to gamers who play it as I mean it's one of the one of the most incredible things I've ever done in a video game as it, I agree with that it's terrible but it's also incredible yeah and so his quotes are very funny he was talking about how like that was the moment where people were cringing and like couldn't look at the screen yes. even just watching someone else play it people were like ugh because it's like it's so intense to even think about putting a needle in your eye but anyway great video game can't wait to play when Kirk wins the bet <laughs> but that yeah that is an example of something that it's not tank controls and it is a mini game that you can perform adequately and smoothly like it's obvious what you're supposed mm -hmm. to do but the part of it that feels horrible is like what you're physically doing in that moment and how much you don't want to do it it's such an that's such an interesting example because it it kind of stands alone. It's really its own thing because you're not. It's not the whole like can you open the door? Can mm -hmm. you run away from can the thing? Can you shoot it's the just aliens? Yeah, this horrifying thing that you have to do and that Isaac is doing to himself, and you just have to like manually do it. And the whole <laughs> time you're thinking, 
what would it feel like to do this to myself? And your whole body is just recoiling. And yeah, there are, I can't even think of that many other things in video games that I've done that, that have felt like yeah. that. I suppose cutting off your finger or whatever it is in Heavy Raid right. is kind of similar. That's that same kind of just body horror. Any sort of like self-mutilation or like something mm-hmm. horrible happens to your character, I think, is kind of scary. I mean, that's part of why Soma is interesting because it's about you and your character, at least, and, and what happens to them. And that can be horrifying but yeah mm-hmm. I, and pray you have to jab things in your eye a lot that's always unpleasant that's true yeah. it's, at least it's just a little button press and you do it but i was just replaying some prey um, yeah that's and you don't have to see you don't see the actual needle you just see the needle just like yeah kind of, it's still kind of it's still kind of gross like it is it is kind of gross it is and i mean it i feel like that's part of why like the tomb raider reboot scenes where lara croft dies were so horrifying mm. to people because it's like well that's the character i am and like now she's being mutilated on screen in front of me and then all of mm-hmm. a sudden you know the game snaps its fingers and she's fine again like it's there's just something very weird about seeing a horrifying thing happen to the avatar of you and then right. you're like oh i guess i guess i'm fine uh, yeah that trope <laughs> of having to watch someone die in increasingly brutal ways every time you get a game over is like that needs mm-hmm. to go away <laughs> I, I hate that <laughs> It bothered me so much in Last of Us, too, I remember. Well, but see, Jason, I feel like Last of Us, I mean, it's like, is that a horror game? Like, that's another example of a game where both the first and the second one, I'm like, well, it is doing some horror things. There's there's some pieces of it that are spooky, scary. You're walking through the shadows. A lot of games take car elements, but aren't necessarily horror games. Like most, Mm -hmm. most action adventure games at some point have some horror scene or horror section in them. Um, a lot of like immersive Sims or a lot of just kind of, I don't know. Um, there's scary parts in horizon. There's scary parts in Elden ring. There's like horror and all this stuff. It's just different than like a horror game. Quote unquote. Well, Oh man. There's so many things I want to talk about. I want to talk about Tomb Raider, but I also want to talk about Elden Ring. Let's put a pin in Elden Ring for a second. Because an interesting, I think that it was interesting the way that Tomb Raider borrowed horror elements to it. I think to a degree that people weren't expecting. This is the Tomb Raider reboot. The first one was this. 2009? Yeah, I don't remember. 2012? I'll probably, I'll bing my way. <laughs> it was 2013. Oh, God. Okay. Bing, we don't know what time is. <laughs> Jason Bing does. Uh, the 2013 reboot. And it was really borrowing from The Descent. Have either of you seen The Descent, that movie? That's one of my favorite horror movies. It's pretty dope. Maddie, I think you'd dig it. I'd it's, probably um, like it. The Descent, just very briefly, is a story of um, a bunch of Female extreme sports oh, enthusiasts. Oh, right. I feel like we've talked about it before. Yeah. Yeah. They they go to this cave. Um, these uh, this group of super tough women who like to climb cliffs and jump off them and do stuff like that. And they go to this cave that's kind of off the map. And then of course they get trapped and things go extremely wrong. And um, it becomes a really a really terrifying claustrophobic horror film. And I like it a lot. And it has a lot of really iconic imagery. Like it's it's very you know. Uh, ingrained, I think, in in horror fans' uh, subconscious, just because it's it's a very striking movie. And there are totally scenes in that Tomb Raider reboot where I was playing it and just being kind of shocked that they were going as far, 
into the descent as they were. There's a sequence in that game later on. It's when Lara has kind of fully transformed into just a murder machine. And there are some guards kind of walking on a lake. There's just this lake of blood because they're yeah. sacrificing all these people. Yep. And the guards walk on this over this lake of blood and they're talking. And then like Lara Croft's head just comes up out of the blood and it's mm-hmm. just her eyes. And she's in this lake of blood. That is like shot for shot a remake of one of the most famous shots in The Descent. And when that happened, I was like, what is this game that I'm playing? This is like full on doing an homage to one of the most hardcore horror movies I've ever seen. Bing! Kirk here, and I just wanted to say that um, the shot in The Descent that I'm talking about is really kind of an homage to Apocalypse Now, and I know how things work, and if I don't mention Apocalypse Now, then a whole bunch of people are going to be like, you know, actually, the thing from The Descent was the Apocalypse Now, but in The Descent, it was blood, and it was blood in Tomb Raider, so I'm going to still say that I think the Tomb Raider reference was to The Descent. Okay, anyways, just wanted to mention that. Back to the show. Bing! And even though some of those death animations were a lot and they were kind of too much because like you said you kind of see them over and over again they're kind of horrifying um i think that in general i actually really appreciated how that game sort of embraced this gnarly horror stuff in a similar way that i actually appreciate that about the last of us as well mm-hmm. yeah can we talk about i know you wanted to talk about elden ring but i want to talk yes. about until dawn and then maybe we can talk a little Ooh. bit about elden ring absolutely because sure. until dawn is one of the one of the horror games i've enjoyed one of the few horror games that i've enjoyed playing um in part because it really feels like it's it's one of the few games that well i guess in part because it's a thriller by the definitions i mentioned earlier and in, mm-hmm. in that it's it's largely driven by plot and not by atmosphere but also it's like it's got such a it's such a perfect encapsulation of like horror tropes as an interactive story and it really just like does it takes the horror movie and feeds it into the video game machine and makes a game out of it in a way that no horror movie could ever do by making it sort of a choose your own adventure and it's just super fun to watch can you kind of like explain yeah, what about it? Is yeah. Um, until Dawn, I mean, essentially, it's like this this um, game where a bunch of teenagers, all played by, or a lot of them played by famous actors, um, including Rami Malek, who's mm-hmm. in there, uh, a pre, that's right, pre-star, right. That's right. Yeah. Became, like, a, a big star, future Academy Award winner, Rami Malek. Um, yeah, one yeah. of his early roles. He's great um, in it. As yeah. a teen weirdo, because that's what sure. every teen is in that game. They're all weirdos. And Hayden Panettiere is in it as well. Yeah. Right? She's the final girl. Yes, Hayden Panettiere. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, and so there are these eight teenagers, and they're on this mountain ski resort thing, and suddenly and things go wrong. The yeah, yeah, they're, they're in a cabin. cabin. <laughs> a cabin um, and and turns out there's a murderer, or at least their lives are being threatened. And as you play through the game, you kind of cut between each of the characters, and they're all very much like horror movie tropes. So you have the, the jock and the, and the ditzy girl, and they're all like... Like having sex and doing teenage things, but you make all these decisions and you see this mm-hmm. giant like butterfly effect type timeline where you see that your decisions actually have all these ripple effects on the rest of the story. And like based on your decisions, characters will live or characters will die. And like you can kill everybody and not see the a good ending because like you killed everybody. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there. It is the perfect game for playing with someone like mm-hmm. of yes. all the horror games this one really because you're making so many choices that like your partner or whoever is sitting with you will get to make choices with alongside you and then there's a spiritual successor that's actually come out coming out um next month called the quarry that i'm really yeah. really excited for I'm that is going to be very similar too. so i'm stoked to, mm-hmm. to play that yeah, it's at a summer camp, which is a uh-huh. classic horror movie oh, yeah. destination and just love the summer camp horror exciting movie. Exciting to me. I'm psyched for that. Yes. Yeah, making it a straight up interactive film was such a good idea. It's actually it was after playing Until Dawn, I was shocked that it hadn't been done before, especially given the way that 
David Cage and Quantic Dream, they were making games that were very similar. I mean, Until Dawn is the same kind of a structure as A Heavy Rain or A Detroit mm-hmm. Become Human, but because it's schlocky and it's embracing, you know, horror tropes and it's not taking itself seriously, it's a crashing success in a way that all of those games weren't. And just like you said, it's so fun to play. Yeah. Beyond Two Souls is the Quantic Dream game. Is it called Beyond Two Souls? It's called something yes. like that. Beyond uh, Two that Souls, that's it. almost horror, and I feel like it just doesn't quite land that plane. Like, it has no. some moments. It's about ghosts. That's not a huge mm-hmm. spoiler. There's ghosts in that game. Uh, and there's some really creepy parts, uh, but it's it's more just another soap opera, and it, it's not like it's it's deciding to be a horror game in the way that right. Until Dawn was. To answer your question, Kirk, I just don't think it was really possible to do that until the PS4 era in terms of like the production values you would want out of a game that tries to really emulate the movies. And it wasn't until 2015 when this game came out that it was really possible to cap- motion capture these uh, famous actors' faces and get them looking realistic and um, like really achieve the look you would want. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I you wouldn't even need to look as much like a movie. Yeah, I mean, it's also like David Cage at all just, I guess, weren't interested in telling those kinds of stories and were instead right. interested in doing something else. But I, I don't, I don't, I just think other other studios should do this, and I'm psyched about the quarry for that reason. If you yeah. want to go way back in time, I mean, there are plenty of like old school games that try to emulate Maniac Mansion as a perfect example of like a bunch of teenage tropes in a haunted mansion, right? Like, or like Night Trap as an example. Yeah, I mean, there Night are Trap. the old FMV games. You know? Yeah, yeah. So there is a lot of stuff that tried to do that. It's just the reason in, Until Dawn stood out is because it was the first game that really felt like a movie, and I think that's in part because it looked like a movie and it felt like a movie, and it was Star movie actors. Mm-hmm. Some of the fun of Until Dawn is that butterfly effect design. The fact mm-hmm. that they're all horror teens, so you don't really care because that's the whole thing about horror movies is you don't mind yeah. if anyone gets killed, so uh-huh. you're not like super attached to them. Even in the way I would argue that Heavy Rain is trying to get you invested, if you lose someone in Heavy Rain, it feels like you've messed up and kind mm-hmm. of screwed up your story, where it, it totally, I mean, the kids who go to the cabin in the woods are supposed to die one by one so it's really just a matter of how that's going to happen yeah and that alone like makes the game really entertaining because you can just play and not really care just like well we'll see what happens i guess Mm -hmm. Uh, we'll just follow our follow our gut and maybe get everybody killed but that's fine we can just play again yeah (laughs) so elden ring let's talk a little (laughs) bit about elden ring because i do think there's something interesting in the way that FromSoft borrows some survival horror tropes like there's they do something distinct. It's very rarely truly scary, but it's the same kind of structure as a horror game where you look down into a room and it's a new room that you've never been in before and it's kind of a big open area and maybe there's an item all the way across the room on the other side and you're like shit. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, that this isn't and it's that same well feeling, me, is it? <laughs> right, yeah. like whatever is going to happen in there it's going to be bad and I'm probably going to die. And then because you die so often in those games and because you so quickly start to see your deaths as sort of funny, it's not scary because you walk in and the floor falls out and you fall into a pit of acid and there's a giant crab and it eats you or you walk in and someone drops a boulder onto you or whatever other horrible thing that happens, it winds up feeling like slapstick instead of horror. A lot more dread than panic in other words. Mm-hmm. It's and it's almost not even dread 
dead because you're not even in a scared place to begin with because death has become so commonplace and you're and you're so used to it. Yeah, although it can be dread if you have like a hundred thousand moons <laughs> and you don't want to give them up. That's what it becomes dread. That's true. That's very yeah. true. So there is kind of a gradient in those games. There are times where it's legitimately just horrifying. You're like, I'm so far into the unknown. I don't know where I am. I have so many souls. I don't want to lose them. This sucks. There's like horrible monsters everywhere. And you really start to kind of feel feel that fear. Mm-hmm. But in that, I wouldn't say that's intentional fear. I mean, I guess it's stress. I would describe it as stress mm, okay, rather yeah. than a horror game scenario. I, Jason, were there things in Elden Ring that you thought were outright scary? Because I don't know if I see it that way. I mean, way. The, the ants. Yeah. Okay, when, uh, so I, you know what? Okay, I take it back. Ants, yes. The ants are really bad. I forget everything I said. Also, when I, I mean, there was there was an incredible moment when I was playing co-op with our buddy Mike Rougeau and um, I wound up falling into the basement somehow and getting eaten by an abductor mm. and taken to Volcano Mansion and I was like terrified the whole time that was happening. <laughs> yeah, that was super fun. The abductor is very okay, terrifying. Yeah. Those those things are terrifying. Um, yeah. I guess Bloodborne has more like full on yeah. horror. I think but, people um, consider Bloodborne has an a fair, a fair dose of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, those abductors are fucking scary. <laughs> yeah. A huge thing with a face that doesn't move that, that grabs you is is quite scary. There's something something freaky about those guys. Bloodborne is a funny one because it's using all of these elements of gothic horror and then Lovecraftian horror. But it's not mostly a very scary game, except in that same way we're describing, that sort of distinct from soft stress, which is sort of its own feeling. Yeah, and I also feel like the design of those games it sort of forces you through my friend uh, breaking the mannequins in Resident Evil 7's demo, where it's just you're seeing it so many mm-hmm. times and you're sort of encouraged to notice the right. patterns of every single enemy and to laugh at yourself and them to such a degree that it's as though it becomes slapstick almost immediately in every scenario. I mean, I still don't like those ants. I don't like those guys yeah, at all. No, but those ants that's are not more cool. just because I don't like how not big cool. those ants are. That's right. less about Elton Ring's design. <laughs> that's a separate more thing. just a personal opinion. Well, the hair. Really, it's the hair on them that is just not cool. Yeah. No, it's not. It's not okay. Yeah, sometimes just a gross enemy is all you need. <laughs> well, there's so much more that we could talk about. Oh, my God. Um, we barely talked about PT. We could just do a whole episode on PT. Maybe we will. Maybe in October when it's closer to Halloween. But for now, I think that'll do it for this discussion of scary games. So, uh, yeah, let's take a break and then come back for one more thing. Hi, my name is Graham Clark, and I'm one half of the podcast Stop Podcasting Yourself, a show that we've recorded for many, many years. And uh, at the moment, instead of being in person, we're recording remotely and uh, you wouldn't even notice. You don't even notice the lag. That's right, Graham. And uh, the great thing about this. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. Okay, go ahead. And you can listen to us uh, every week on MaximumFun.org. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Your podcast. Did your neighbor back into your car? Bring that case to Judge Judy. Think the mailman might be the real father? Give that one to Judge Mathis. But does your mom want you to flush her ashes down the toilet at Disney World when she passes away? Now that's my jurisdiction. Welcome to the court of Judge John Hodgman, where the people are real, the disputes are real, and the stakes are often unusual. 
If I got arrested for dumping your ashes in the Jungle Cruise, it would be an honor. I don't want to be part of somebody getting a super yacht. I don't know at what point you want to go into this, but we've had a worm bin before. Available free right now at MaximumFun.org. Judge John Hodgman, the court of last resort when your wife won't stop pretending to be a cat and knocking the clean laundry over. And we're back for one more thing, Maddie. You have to go first because I see what your one more thing is. And it can just carry on from what we were just talking about. I know. Uh, So I picked Elden Ring. This is kind of me ringing out Elden Ring because I know we're going to record a Beans cast this month. But I wanted to say something else about it since I'm basically at the end. I've reached the final, final boss. I will beat it at some point this week for the Beans. But... I had to really change my builds in the last chunk of this game, and I have mixed Mm. feelings about the fact that I did that. I've talked a lot on this show about how I really like doing a strength build with, like, either an axe or, like, a really big sword and a shield. And I did that for almost the entirety of Elden Ring. Love and life. Great stuff. And then somewhere around the fire giant, maybe a little before, I started doing the power stance with two swords Mm. it probably started around when i picked up the bloodhound's fang which was actually like fairly early on which is just a really good curved great sword in that game that's super satisfying and it was better than every other weapon i had and it seemed really stupid not to use it so i just started (laughs) being like okay well i'll just start using this and like i'll get Mm -hmm. back to my axes later and then i just kept (laughs) not getting back to them and then eventually i found too good well, I use it the entire game. The Bloodhound's Fang is really good as a thing. Yeah, it's a very good weapon. And then I found another curved greatsword eventually that fit pretty well with it. I don't remember which one. It's like the Onyx, maybe. Morgoth's. I use that with Morgoth's. Uh, oh, the I Onyx one use, is good, too. Yeah, Yeah, the Onyx one, I think, is what I did at first. And then I just had both of those, and that was pretty great. And then around when I got to Melania, I was like really struggling because I wasn't quite good enough level wise for her and then I was like well I could just get a friend to give me another Bloodhound's Fang because there's only one in the game so you have to get somebody else to give you Mm -hmm. one or play New Game Plus well that's right but I I just kind of cut the line and had a friend of mine who isn't using it give me that one so then I I had these two Bloodhound's Fangs and I leveled them both up to 10 and then I just freaking slashed my way through (laughs) everything that ever stood in my way and I totally changed I like respect I changed to full dex build I started wearing lighter armor I started rolling you guys I'm out Mm, here rolling I don't know who I am anymore (laughs) I'm literally rolling Ring has changed you I could play Bloodborne now, I guess, because now I'm out here rolling and just... Mm-hmm. just. Dexville is good practice for Bloodborne. I say. guess it is. I just I feel like I've changed fundamentally and I don't know what's, what's happened to me. I don't think it's... I mean, it's not bad, but I also feel like I betrayed myself and that I should have just gone with the strength build for the rest of it. But I don't know. The Bloodhound's Fang converted me, I guess. So now I'm a dex build person and <laughs> I'm rolling. For what it's worth, it's a common complaint that I'm sure we'll talk about on the Beans cast that Melania requires you, that like some builds just can't beat her. You almost have to do, I mean, if, okay, if you if you are a magic build, you just have to make it work. I've heard it's very hard against her. I, I can't speak to that personally. Uh, but it is true that re-rolling for a dex build made that fight cake in a way that it previously was not mm-hmm. um so i had the ability to do that with the mm-hmm. the weapon i already had but i did feel a little weird yeah, she's about very it. susceptible to bleed because i felt like i could have just 
stuck with my original play style and it would have been harder, but it would have been like a fun challenge. But whatever, I had to beat it for the podcast. So that's that's the only reason I did this. Um, nice. That's why I've learned how to roll. But you didn't have to because she's optional. So you didn't actually have to beat her for the podcast. Mm, I did, though, for like emotional <laughs> reasons. She's like the, the iconic boss from the that's game. That's true. So. <laughs> It's true. Come on. I had to get her. I had to get her. All of the, um, I set up some custom art for the game in Steam just because I'm a, a nerd. Cool. And I was just <laughs> looking at the custom art, and all the custom art is these awesome pictures of Melania. She's, <laughs> like it's, she's, she's the just, coolest. Well, she's on that key art that's like her and Radon fighting yeah. each other, right? That's like, oh, yeah. Big, also, that. Yeah. She was in that. She's the, it's great character design. Yeah. Um, even if she's sort of a frustrating boss. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'll go next. I've been playing two Persona games, the two most recent Persona games, and I played a whole bunch of Persona 4 Golden. The two the two most recent mainline. There are a ton of spin-offs mm. since then. Yes, sorry. Oh, the two most like actual Persona <laughs> games. I don't play the spin-offs. I don't do the dancing stuff. Um, but no, yes. Persona 4 Golden and Persona 5 Royal, which uh, one of which I'd played. I'd played Persona 4 Golden when it came out on the Vita in 2012, 10 years ago, which is pretty wild. But now, of course, it's on Steam. It came out on Steam in 2020, so I got that on the Steam Deck to kind of relive the Vita glory days on the Steam Deck. And I played a pretty significant chunk of it. I played up till you get Risei into your party and kind of the full gang gets together. And then I kind of had been texting with, with you, Jason, about Persona 4 and how I was really liking it, but it's just interesting going back to Golden since I had played Persona 5. And I'd never played Royal, which is the expanded version of Persona 5 that came out in 2019. Jason, you talked about it on the show. 2020. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, in Japan in 2019, in 2020 in, in worldwide. Mm-hmm. I, it came out um, just about just around when COVID was starting. That's how I remember, because I spent a whole yes. bunch of those early days of COVID playing through all of Persona yes, 5. Yes, and right yeah. at the start. Of, at the start of Triple Click, too. It was yes. a very right. early thing that you talked about. Yes. And you, I would have had to buy, just buy the game again. Like, it's just a full $60, even if you already own Persona 5. And I just wasn't willing to do that, even though I was curious. Um, but I randomly found it on sale last week for 20 bucks and was like, okay, nice. $20 for an upgrade. Fine, I'll do it. Um, so I started playing that as well. And then I've, I found myself really just pivoting from the one to the other, which was interesting because I can see really clearly all of these ways that the series changed from Persona 4 Golden to Persona 5 Royal. And and really just, I mean, it's a huge difference between those two games. I hadn't really fully internalized how different they are, particularly mechanically different. But um, I'm still not sure which one that I like better. <laughs> mm. That I don't understand. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm such a Persona 5 head. Um, mm-hmm. But it feels like that game is so, such, so much better designed and like better crafted in every way. Yes. I mean, and that's, and I think that's true. Like there's, there's a sort of objective improvement across the board in Persona 5. Persona 5 is incredible. It had been so long since I'd played it. It's spectacular. You talking about it makes me want to play it all again for the third time. <laughs> yeah. That's how um, good it is. So playing for like playing Persona 4 Golden, I was just like, this is such a nice game. I really like the vibe. I remember how much I like this music. The energy is really cool. And what that game has going for it that I think that I think puts it in a it, that it does a little differently than Persona 5. It's a more relaxing experience in general because you're in the country, you're in this fictional town of Inaba, which is just kind of a rural city, and there's a murder mystery, but it's just got a more low-key energy. There's a lot of just, it's quiet and it's raining and there's no music playing, which is something this game does so well. Normally there's all this amazing music playing, but then when it rains, you go to the world map and it's just the sound of rain. And it's just, it's got 
this vibe. There's a vibe when your character looks out the window and sees the rain and closes the window and goes over to the TV. These kind of repeated animations you see over and over in this game. And that vibe is really great. And then also, the characters are nice. The way that their friends feel, it feels like they would be friends with one another in school, like they're high school kids who are friends in a way that in Persona 5, there are all these like kind of super hyper characters who are all a lot more intense, you know, like An is a model and Yusuke is like this big artist, this genius artist, and everyone is kind of like really big and outsized. And that's kind of that game's whole deal. Well, it's city versus country. It's very right. much. Yeah, and it's in, right. True. And you're Patrick in like Shibuya, you're in Tokyo. It's this much more, and you're online. The whole thing is like the internet and uh-huh, chat rooms uh-huh. and like internet discourse and all this stuff. So it's just a way more blown out experience so there's something about the vibe of Persona 4 that I like but now that I'm playing Royal I am just I'm so overwhelmed by the game it's such a like decadent game it just pulls you in and then you get going and it's just this over this like deluge of art and music and animations and all this like cool stuff and just every moment of it is so just like pleasing it's such a pleasurable game to play i'm just sitting here kind of playing through it being like well i'm probably gonna play like this whole stupid thing over the next few months <laughs> now you know how i felt two years ago exactly how yeah. i felt two years ago it really and the it funny really thing is it's like uh once you get to the end stuff it's actually totally worth it because there's like some really good stuff at the end of the game that they've added yeah i've been impressed i've been impressed with the changes they've of course there's this new character who they're kind of folding into the story but there's all these mechanical improvements mm-hmm. a lot of little things that make a big difference you get the baton pass right at the beginning that totally changes combat oh, yeah, you have like your bullets reload after each fight so you can like it just there's all this little stuff that they've really like just move the levers and in various ways that introduce all these cool new ideas and you know i'm i'm not that far into the game i i'm doing the i guess the second the second major uh, palace or second palace yeah yeah and it's i mean it's just it's cool it's cool going back to it and playing it and i've been playing it i have been playing it on steam deck which has been a better way to do it i'm using chiaki to stream it from the ps5 which i talked about a few weeks ago works great it looks perfect like it's like playing it on vita which i find at least a better way to play a game this long is to just chill on the couch and kind of play it rather mm-hmm. than having to sit at you know at my desk or sit in front of a, a bigger screen i think maybe one of the reasons i can never go back to i don't think i'll ever replay persona 4 or 3 and that's because of the randomized dungeons as opposed to Persona 5's like carefully crafted brilliant dungeons every single one of them is great I, you know yeah and it's kind of like mementos in Persona 5 it's like just more of a kind of mindless yeah thing. which is just you can do that too optionally but like yeah. Persona 5 each dungeon and the, the rhythm of like having to plan out your escape route and then like come back to it another time and the music changes and you do your heist yeah. and it, it's just so perfect that game is just spectacular that stuff is amazing, though I will say there is something to the simplicity of Persona 4 where it's just kind of go through a repetitive dungeon, don't think about it too much, get some more story. It's so much lower key. Yeah. I mean, playing them back to back, it really is remarkable how Persona 5, it's like, blah, like just so like funny. everything yeah. is happening. There's so much going on. Country versus city, man. It's really, it's wild. Um, I will also say to Persona 4's credit, Persona 4 has a better mystery, overall mystery. And like, mm-hmm. I was totally shocked by the, the mystery twist at the end of Persona for, whereas Persona 5 doesn't really have anything like that. Yeah, it's structured differently because it's a series of heists. Anyways, I'll probably talk about it more. Maybe we'll talk about Persona down the road, but it's been cool playing Royal. Um, Jason, what's your one more thing? Alright, my one more thing is a video game that I bet neither of you have heard of. It is called no. Eternal nope. Threads. Um, so this game uh, is, it's sort of like it's a walking simulator slash like um, very much like uh, that play uh, 
shit. I was just thinking about it, and now COVID has fogged my brain, and I can't think of the name. What's the name of that Shakespeare play that everyone is obsessed with that uh, you put on your oh, masks God. and... Uh, Hold on. Macbeth? Oh, oh. Uh, sleep no more. Um, sleep, oh, no sleep no more. more. Okay. Yeah, it's that no, is Macbeth, I suppose. It is Shakespeare. Yes. I mean, yes, technically it is. It's but. sort of like sleep no, yeah, more. sleep no More. So the way that this game works, and it's an indie game um, made by uh, a small group of developers called um, Cosmonauts. Uh, studios in the UK. And so the way it works is um, it is set in this apartment complex and you play as this investigator who is coming in and you've discovered that in this apartment complex there was a fire and it killed six people, the six people who live there. And you have to go back through time using your special like Return of the Obra Dinn-esque device <laughs> to, hmm. um, to kind of like look at the timeline of events, figure out what happened and figure out if you can prevent the murder or the deaths from happening. And so so you follow this big old timeline that has like hundreds of scenes on it and you watch all these scenes unfold in like kind of sleep no more style mm-hmm. where you're like watching these supernatural versions or like these kind of lo-fi like cloudy versions of the characters right. interact with each other and talk to each other and have conversations and um, talk about whatever they're they're all kids they're all uh, uni students university students in the UK and um, and then you can, as you're going through these timelines, you can make choices for them at various points. So, like, at one point, there's um, there's a, a, a guy, the, the landlord of the apartment building is, like, uh, drunk, and it's the middle of the night, and his friend is telling him not to text his crazy ex, and he is considering doing it, and you have to help him choose, like, which one is it going to be? And as you choose, mm-hmm. like, it'll... Um, it'll have ripple effects sort of like until dawn as we were talking about yeah. earlier where like it'll change it'll open up different scenes or lock different scenes throughout your big timeline and so i've only played about four hours of this so far but i'm really interested in seeing what happens next so far it's a little bit slow um some of the scenes that i've been watching are a little bit like unnecessary there's a lot of like character building and trying to like set up these characters but it is it has unfolded very slowly for me and i don't know anything about the resolution or like how it's all like for all i know i could hate it by this time next week if like uh, <laughs> the story the story just flops yeah it could be but, a real 12 minute situation that exactly you're into. exactly that's what i want to avoid but uh i'm really enjoying the conceit so far and it's a really cool type of like walking sim slash investigative game where you're just like watching a story unfold and making choices along the way and so it also has hinted at some like weird little mysteries like there's one scene so to to watch each scene you actually have to go to where the scene takes place and so you can actually collect things that help you unlock different areas where you could find different scenes so like um, you get a key to a room or you get a combination lock and there's one scene that Mm -hmm. as I'm like progressing through this timeline it's like this character disappeared somewhere and you don't know where he went or what the deal is and you can't watch the scene because you you, it's just like hidden room and you don't know how to get there and so there's some Mm -hmm. interesting stuff being unfolded there's like uh, there's hints at darker stuff behind some of the characters like darker paths or like darker secrets that people are hiding uh it's really interesting i'm really hooked so far and i'm very curious to see how it all how it all comes together so again it's called eternal threads and yeah i i think this game i'm not sure i only found out about it because of an ign preview i don't know why it's gone so far under the radar um but uh yeah nobody else seems to have noticed it or is talking about it so allow triple click to be the show that turns you on to interesting new games yeah, cool. Eternal Threads. I'll check it out. Nice. Well, we did it. We did it. It, it, wasn't, again, it wasn't too scary. We came out the other side. <laughs> it 
Jason survived the no, whole No, but that episode. was where you would just insert a jump scare, like an, an audio scream. And... <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, we'll just jump out at everybody right at the very end. Uh-huh, uh-huh. All right. Well, this was fun. I will see the two of you next week. See ya. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.